We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible. All the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves will disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. The American comic Jonathan Winters once said about his early career, I couldn't wait around for success. I had to go ahead without it. Self-doubt is pervasive because life is full of uncertainty. Self-doubt is painful because it's linked to our values, to what matters most to us. In this episode, we chat with psychologist Jim Lucas about making room for, even embracing, our self-doubt through the practice of self-compassion. Here we are today on Life's Dirty Little Secrets. I'm Emma Waddington in Singapore. And I'm Chris McCurry in Seattle, Washington. And today we have lovely Jim Lucas, who is in Birmingham. And Jim is a CBT therapist who then moved into ACT, which is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and he's here today to talk to us about self-doubt. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Wonderful. So I think the topic of self-doubt is so, so important for me because, you know, obviously in my clinical work, I've been, gosh, in and out of clinical work for about, since I started, studying probably, what is it, 15, 16, 17 years? Gosh, even longer probably. And one thing that struck me from very, very quickly is this, the amount of self-doubt. And I really hoped that with time, it would get better. And I realized that some elements did. Obviously, I felt more confident, but there was always self-doubt. And even over the, you know, every time I see a new client, I move to a new role, it sort of peaks, and then it might sort of calm down, but it never really goes. And slowly it became apparent that it wasn't going to go. And over time, I've come to realize that we have to make room for this self-doubt if we are to navigate the work that we do. And with ease and almost, maybe ease is the wrong word, with more comfort, because in, initially, I remember speaking to one of my first supervisors about it, and he was a fabulous New Yorker. And he said to me, don't worry, it never goes. And I thought, oh, no, surely it does. <laughs> Please tell me it does. And so when I, when, I, when I listened to your podcast a few years ago, I thought, oh, how fantastic. We can actually start to talk about self-doubt. We can actually have these conversations versus sort of keeping it behind closed doors in our supervision session when we discuss cases or perhaps in peer supervision. And so, yes, I love the opportunity to think about self-doubt and obviously not just in the realm of the clinicians. Obviously, that's the, that's the job that we all do. But I also thought about it more widely and the fact that recognizing or being open about things that we don't know, honest about 
you know, questions we may have is really difficult. It's something that most of us struggle to do. Well, if you just think in terms of parenting, you know, there, there wouldn't be 66,000 parenting books out there if <laughs> parents were feeling you know, quite confident in what they were doing. So, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty pervasive. Yeah, it's true. In the area of parenting, absolutely. It's almost like in the area of anything that we truly care about, anything that's really important. I'm sure, I don't know how many books there are on relationships, but I'm sure that there's lots of them too. Probably, yeah. And obviously in, in any of our careers, yes. So I'd love to hear, Jim, from your perspective, what is your sense? How do you see self-doubt in its, its place in mm-hmm. our work, in our worlds? It's a subject I've been interested in for a, a number of years and have spoken on it. And I, and I first became interested in it when a colleague of mine and I decided to put a training workshop together and we called it our 10 worst therapeutic mistakes. So 10 biggest mistakes we felt we'd ever made in our jobs. Okay. Um, that was very brave. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and... Um, and the reason that we decided to do that was we felt that most of the training experiences that we'd had had really been about how to do this perfectly or how to be a master of this. And there was something missing. There was something missing about that, that honesty, about you know the day-to-day of, of trying to do something well, trying to be good at whether that's being a therapist, whether that's being a teacher or a medic, or, or whatever it is that you're that you're interested in, that you're just trying to do a good job of. The honest experience for a lot of us is that we're full of fear and anxiety about doing a very bad job of it. Yes, so true, isn't it? And so it felt just like it felt like we just wanted to start to sort of create an opportunity for to begin to sort of speak about this. So true. So refreshing, and it's so freeing actually to get to start to speak about it. I found it very validating when I start when I listened to the original podcast you did and the talk that you gave. This idea that actually not only is it important for us to start to speak about our self doubts and being brave and courageous enough to to recognize the areas in which we do feel insecure about but that actually those, those, that very self-doubt can actually open us up to learning new things and exploring, being curious, and actually growing. It doesn't actually shut things down for us the way we fear. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's counterintuitive. Mm. Like if we're thinking about what is doubt, I think what we're really kind of thinking about is it's, it's when people have uncertainties about things. And, you know, sometimes that can be described as like having a lack of confidence in like your abilities to do something well or an outcome of something that you're really kind of hoping for. Like, you know, my child grows up well-rounded or, you know, I, I do a good job of being a therapist or those sorts of things. And uncertainty is often treated as something we need to reduce or eliminate that what we should be striving for is to be confident, you know, because confident equals like something good, confidence equals something attractive, confidence equals something successful. 
And yet, when you look at it, really, I think there are kind of a number of problems that arise when, if we're, if we're striving to eliminate uncertainty, just be confident all the time, to have no doubt. I think is, one is that, that there are many uncertainties you just can't eliminate, can you? Mm-hmm. You know, life is full of things that we can't be certain about. And we know it's also a big factor in many kind of long-term anxiety conditions that when people struggle to tolerate uncertainty, it's so it's such a present kind of factor in, in, in why it is that people might be that plagued by anxiety kind of long-term. So I think that's one problem with striving to be confident. I think another is it's not easily acquired confidence. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't just be confident. Yeah. And so, and I think a confidence has been like, well, I get confidence when I've practiced something a lot. Like yeah. it's, it's the product of having practiced and got better and more familiar at something. And also probably a broader sense of self-acceptance. I think I've, I feel a bit more comfortable in my own skin as I've got older and mm-hmm. be, probably become more self-accepting of like my flaws my warts, mm-hmm. the, the things I don't like about myself. And clearly not always the case. And, you know, there are spaces and moments where I can see myself losing confidence or feeling less comfortable in my own skin. And it will and, depend a lot, won't it, in, in terms of other factors. Confidence and feeling comfortable in your own skin won't, it can, so many factors can influence it. You're having a bad day or someone comes yeah. along and says something or you're off and that can affect your confidence and yet that doesn't mean that you can't do a good job or a job that's important to you even without that feeling of confidence yeah and i think that's where it's easy for humans to get stuck is that we see the problem being a lack of confidence and it gets in the way of us then being able to do things Mm -hmm. like apply for a new job or move location in the world or you know explore a new relationship or hobby like oh i'm not confident enough yet to do that when i'm more confident i'll then take make that first move and so we start to then try to fix this thing inside of us rather than and it's kind of putting the cart before the horse i think confidence usually follows some kind of action in that way yes with a lot of the teenagers that I've worked with over the years who claim that they're not, they're not doing their schoolwork because they lack motivation or they lack confidence as if these are things that, you know, you either have or don't have and, or you have like one leader or you have two leaders or, or whatever, you know, that, that, and somehow, you know, I have to acquire this and then I, then I have it as opposed to it's a story that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it does come from, from experience. I like to quote a psychologist from the 1940s, a guy named Maurer, who said, I can act my way into feeling better sooner than I can feel my way into acting better. <laughs> so, yeah, we, and, you know, we acquire these things through action. And, and it's tenuous. It's fleeting. It really is, because it could be, you know, something happens that knocks our confidence or things don't work out the way we expected. And that can actually get in the way of us doing something that is important or us persevering. 
And that, that sort of self-doubt or lack of confidence can show up. And that can freeze us. That can actually make us stop and not try and perhaps hide or not show up. And, and then we start believing that it really was because of our lack of confidence or lack of skill. So I go back to my um, sort of the first half of my 20s. I was kind of mostly single. And part of why that reason why that was is I felt kind of very inadequate when it came to dating. Felt like I was just kind of, just found the whole thing very kind of awkward. And, you know, I'd, I'd get very kind of stuck with that. When you were just talking about freezing there, sort of that, that inertia, just took me back to that because that's that's very much kind of what it's just sort of felt like like i was i was waiting to no longer feel inadequate to no longer feel awkward before i would start to change that of course that's not how it worked you know i had to keep i had to keep feeling awkward in order to you know change that part of my life make it something different it's true isn't it that that waiting that's so true that we wait to feel better or we wait to be less anxious or we wait to feel more motivated, like Chris was saying. And, you know, we can just stay waiting. I think it was it was Joanne Steinwalk. What I can't remember how to pronounce it. Steinwalks, yeah. Steinwalks. He said to me once, you know, it's life is about most people think that it's about feeling better but it's actually about getting better at feeling mm. and it's so powerful i think about that that awkwardness that sense of inadequacy that feeling of being an imposter that really can freeze us can you repeat that so she once said that the work that we do or in life what we want to learn is instead of feeling better it's actually getting better at feeling getting better at feeling yeah. Nice. Most people want to feel better. And yet that's what can get in the way of us moving our lives forward. It's right. waiting well, to feel better, feel different. Steve Hayes used to say the the goal of ACT is not to feel good, but it's to feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Similar, to feel good. Yeah, exactly. And yet that's so hard for us humans. We don't like feelings that aren't positive and, you know, easy to feel, the ones that are difficult to feel, yeah, can really stop us. And I think around performance and our ability to do things, if we do feel incapable or, or not good enough or unworthy or this inadequacy that you were saying, Jim, that's a really tough one. It's a tough one to navigate. Because ultimately, as humans, we want to feel like we belong and we're doing a good job and we are worthy. And not to feel so is incredibly painful. Absolutely is. You, you were mentioning also earlier about then kind of the, the benefits of, mm. of being able to embrace self-doubt. Mm. This, this counter intuitive thing that seems to be maybe the thing that gets in the way of that belonging that you were just referring to. And I mentioned earlier that people are, it's interesting this one because culturally I think there's this narrative that confidence equals something good, confidence mm. equals something attractive. Yet when I actually looked at my lived experience, 
I find humility attractive. I find that kind of humble stance attractive. When people are willing to share their vulnerability, their flaws with me, their doubts with me, there's some kind of like probably at a physiological level as well as a in my head, there's some safety that just starts to sort of occur where that doesn't occur so quickly or so easily when I'm maybe with somebody who's just showing me sort of a just a, a very confident side where they feel like they they know everything there is to know or that then they reject kind of any views that are different to their own or there's there's never kind of any acknowledgement or recognition of mistake making so it's sort of a toxic confidence <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah it's very repellent isn't it but it is interesting isn't it that that we don't follow that experience that experience doesn't lead us to a, doesn't shape our behavior often we actually continue to think we need to appear confident. We need to appear like we know what we're talking about. And yet, if we ask ourselves and if we think about what it feels like to be with others who are humble and willing to be vulnerable, that that feels so much more belonging, so much more part of, of the crowd we want to be with, I'm struck by the fact that we still keep telling ourselves we need to feel confident. <laughs> And yet that is not the thing that helps us. When others show us their, their vulnerability, we feel more connected. And yet we still have that story in our heads that we need to appear confident and know what we're talking about all the time. I, I think there are still environments, many environments, where vulnerability is not rewarded. Mm. And True. confidence and being sort of strong in a rigid way are rewarded. And I think this exists in many kind of working environments. You know, you, you can't show you're finding something difficult here. True, you're right, actually. You can't, you can't cry at work. True. Mm. Yes, it's true. So it's almost that, that there's different environments call for, I guess I was thinking, yeah, I'm thinking about in terms of relationships, in terms of even parenting, you know, it's so hard for us as a parent to say to our child, you know, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. It's really hard. And yet we want them to say that <laughs> fairly <laughs> regularly if possible. <laughs> but as a parent, it's really tough. And I think there's so many environments, actually. Obviously, work is, is a particularly difficult one. But, you know, it's tough to say to a friend, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Or even our partners, recognizing those those errors, those areas of, of vulnerability, humility, and yet they make us feel so much closer. But absolutely, there are certainly environments where that would not be rewarded or recognized as a strength. And yet that humility is, is so useful in terms of being able to navigate complexity, mm. navigate ambiguity. It allows you to sort of be more open-minded rather than closed-minded, which is so useful for so many contexts, so useful for a business environment where things are complex often. There right. are ambiguous things. There are different ideas and different cultures going on in terms of people's backgrounds. People could bring different 
perspectives to the table solve a lot of problems. Yeah. It's beginner's mind where it's like, you know, I don't know, therefore I'm open to the possibilities and I can think outside the box or however you want to phrase it. Because I, I think uncertainty is just, you know, the flip side of curiosity where, you know, I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm curious about what to make of this and how to navigate and move forward. Yeah, it's it's holding the uncertainty that, isn't it? That kind of curious response rather than saying, you know, this we can't see any pain in your body, so therefore there's no cause to your pain. If it can't be reduced down to something you can find in someone's blood test, then, you know, it's a syndrome or or it's an unexplained medically a symptom. It's I like what you're saying there, Chris, about curiosity, because I think curiosity is is a useful part of being able to respond flexibly to things that you experience. But when I think about psychological flexibility, and I think, you know, when we resist or try to control or avoid things that make us feel uncomfortable, can usually take us in an unhelpful direction. But that curiosity can just start to that's a different direction. I'm just, um, there might be this thing behind the door that I don't want to think about or feel. But if I can be curious, maybe I just open the door a little to see what that experience might be like, to see what that point of view or that idea or that suggestion might be like. Well, I, I, I tell people that that's, you know, what got us out of the caves yeah. was curiosity. You know, people were living in fear of, thunder and lightning and eclipses and even the phases of the moon until somebody said, hey, this is kind of regular, you know, or gee, what's up with that? And they started leaning into it and, and learning about it and studying it. And then it became less frightening and even predictable. So yeah, curiosity is mostly helpful to lean into our lives. Yeah, it is true. I'm thinking about sort of the, the, the what you were saying, Jim, about uncertainty being so difficult for us to tolerate so uncomfortable to think to sit with uncertainty and how to instead to lean into this curiosity when uncertainty shows up when we're not too sure about you know what's happening here for me or what should I do about this to be more curious about that question versus what sometimes can happen where it creates a lot of anxiety I don't know what to do and therefore I'm going to walk away or hide or step away i think it's a nice starting block mm. nice first step yeah um, i think we can get stuck with it too like if we because it can be there's a risk also of just using curiosity to try and figure out how do i mm. so how do i get rid of my uncertainty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of needs to be built on a bit as well with some like okay me what would it be like to sort of allow this experience? I could notice and describe and make room for this experience without then trying to get away from it. Where might that take me? Right. Or even just to be able to see it as a thing. Like sometimes, you know, people, people will tell me in my practice, you know, I'm confused. And I'll say, are you certain that you're confused? And they'll be, well, yeah. And I say, okay, so you're not confused about that. <laughs> so if, if, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I'm uncertain, it sort of it's, 
gives you a more metacognitive view of things. So I, I wonder if you can talk to us, Jim, a little bit about when it comes to self-doubt and, and compassion and self-compassion. So I know from our previous conversations that you've done a bit of work thinking about self-doubt and the importance of navigating that with self-compassion, and that's kind of where the magic can happen. Right. So, you know, those, when I've spoken about that, that's really come out of some work that was done in Scandinavia, and there's a lovely paper that was published about, about 2015. It's called Love Yourself as a Person, Doubt Yourself as a Therapist. And what this piece of research was about was looking at therapist behaviours both in session and outside of session, and what effect those behaviours have on whether clients get better, whether they get good therapy outcomes, what difference it makes to a therapist's well-being, and how well they can sort of navigate kind of challenges and in communication relationships. And what they found was is that that self-doubt is very much positively associated with better outcomes in therapy. As as long as, yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? And as long as it sits close to that a therapist can practice self-compassion. Fascinating, that. It's really interesting. And I guess it does make sense because if you have self-doubt but you're incredibly self-critical, it's going to get in the way. With that, what we were saying about this sort of curiosity, if we can have self-doubt and still hold it lightly, then it can move us because it's obviously something that's important to us. That's why we have, that's why self-doubt matters in a way. When it's something that matters, self-doubt will hurt because we want to do a good job. We want to be a good parent. We want to be a good partner, good friend, a good colleague. And when we start to question whether we're doing a good job, it is because that matters to us. Right. And so it makes sense, I guess, that if we can navigate having self-doubt, being very mindful that, that it's because we care about this thing, about this person, about this relationship, and that therefore we can move forward with that, with self-doubt, if we hold it in that way versus if we hold it a stick to ourselves when we do feel this insecurity or anxiety or worry or self-doubt about what we've done that can actually really freeze us and get in the way so it, it makes sense that research it, it, it does it's about how we hold the self-doubt really what you're showing there is 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 precisely an example of how to apply self-compassion in practice mm. you know can i see myself as a human being here with different roles different motivations like wanting to be this or that Yes. And and frame my struggle inside caring about those things, and that's a really nice demonstration. I think people can see of how you might then begin to practice mm-hmm. self compassion. Because it is so hard, isn't it? Self compassion is so hard. It's it's not something that comes naturally to most of us. You know, some of us it takes us decades of of sitting in on meditation cushions to actually develop this skill. It really is very counterintuitive to us humans to be self-compassionate. I, 
when I think about my sort of training journey, you know, there was there was a point where I learned mindfulness work, which I I found quite straightforward and sort of a you know a relatively easy ride in terms of practicing and developing that. And then I, later I, I started to get into self compassion. I found that a much harder road trip. It was there was resistance. There was like there were judgments going on in my mind about it. And, and later, I think I kind of come to understand that a bit better, which was, and I think something about like doing some self-compassion work is hard mm. because you have to get down in the dirt yeah. in order to do it. It's, it's painful work. Really matter. You have to really be self-compassionate. And in order to really feel that self-compassion, you really do need to get down in the dirt. Otherwise, it won't feel like self-compassion. It has to be from a place that hurts to be able to share, to show ourselves kindness and to really feel that kindness. I love the, the, the way Kristen Neff does self-compassion. And I think that's a conversation in itself, but that sort of recognition that, you know, we are human and fallible and that at this, in this moment, there'll be many others feeling and doing just like you. And that is, yeah, it's, it's, you, I can, when I read her, when I started reading her stuff, I could, I could resonate with why it's useful. It isn't really the, the first thing I would have thought of doing initially, <laughs> but yeah, it, it definitely allows me to carry things more easily. Right. Yeah. And I find that too, you know, particularly around relationships, being a parent, being a partner, being a friend to you know, when those judgments or those doubts or those criticisms show up, I've been able to carry the experience of that easier when I've been able to notice me a person, finding something difficult and being able to hold myself with more warmth and kindness and wisdom. Absolutely. No, so true, so important and and so hard. All, All true. So I think we're coming to the end of our time, which is such a shame. This has been a wonderful conversation. So sort of wrapping things up, thinking about, we started the conversation thinking about sort of my self-doubt as a clinician and how, you know, I had to, I have to, and I still do on a daily basis, learn to navigate it. But actually how self-doubt is pervasive, that humans, we feel this sense of, inadequacy and awkwardness or or that we're not good enough in so many areas of our life in fact it's sort of very much very much in line with any area that we care about it seems to be that the more we care the more likely we are to to question our abilities and our worth and i've really loved thinking about how to hold that self-doubt with more compassion thinking about being more curious about the uncertainty and what that brings and what it brings when we do hold self-doubt and our sense of inadequacy more lightly, actually how it can open us up to, to growth, to, to learning, to, like you said, I, I loved your story about your early days navigating relationships and how you could sit there and wait for inadequacy and discomfort to leave, or you could move forward. <laughs> and, get to those relationships 
So that was wonderful. Anything, any final thoughts? Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's a, I'm glad we're talking about this. It, you know, I know, I know you feel it's important for more people to be talking about self-doubt because, you know, then that spreads and that, that models something. If we can start to talk about it. Hopefully that helps others begin to talk about it a bit more too. Yes. And I think in, you mentioned in organizations, and I think it is starting, obviously the, the likes of Brene Brown with her call to courage, you know, asking leaders to sort of talk about this more vulnerability and more openness. Obviously, we're, I don't think, you know, we're just at the beginning, but it's, it is spreading slowly, but it is getting to the corners of the world where we're least likely to see it. Yeah, yeah, and that's nice to hear. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Thank you, and Jim. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Emma. Wonderful. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.